Hello friends, I'm Ashish Darbari, founder and CEO of Axiomize. To our new listeners, welcome. And to our old ones, welcome back. Today I have a very interesting personality in-house, someone who is a key influencer in the RISC-V ecosystem and is a senior director of Next Generation Platform Technologies at Western Digital. And his name is Zovinamir Pandek. Welcome, Zovinamir. If you don't mind, can you share a bit about your personal history? Where were you born and how did you get into science and engineering? And how exactly did you end up at Western Digital? Well, um, I, I uh, was born in Belgrade, former Yugoslavia. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and um, I have um, gotten interested in science and engineering kind of early on, or around the age I was 13 or 14, when I realized that I was not going to have a great career as a violinist. And um, in Yugoslavia, uh, these science and math programs for kids were really, really very well organized. There was all sorts of competitions, science camps, specialist schools and stuff. So I kind of took that path and participated in a lot of math and physics competitions and ended up uh, studying um, uh, technical physics in the School of Electrical Engineering. And then after college, I went to California to Caltech in Pasadena to pursue a PhD in applied physics. So my, my passions were around semiconductor devices and a wide angle of semiconductor electronics while at, uh, while at Caltech. But um, when, I, when I graduated, there were no jobs in, in uh, what was the beginning of the gallium nitride power electronics. So, so wow. that, that actually became, the technology became commercial only like last year. Right, right, uh, right, yeah. And, and I was actually the very first person who built a gallium nitride power uh, high voltage uh, diodes and high voltage transistors, but now you can actually, I think most of the consumer electronics will transition to gallium nitride based chargers, and I think it's going to be a big hit for electric car charging as well. So yeah, yeah. But, uh, but back then, the jobs on gallium nitride were only, I think, maybe a few jobs on the East Coast and, and, and academic jobs. So I, I interviewed with IBM research and got the job in IBM Ahmadan research, in, in storage research. And I'm still in that same job, uh, still with the same badge number, because uh, IBM and Hitachi made a joint venture called Hitachi Global Storage Technologies that became AGST and eventually got acquired by Western Digital. Oh, wow. So, okay. Uh, I never actually stood you know, spent 21 years in the same, on the same job, basically. Wow, so quite a journey, hey, from uh, physics to landing up a job in storage. And who would have thought a storage would be a big deal 20, 30 years ago, right? I mean, of course, it has been an important, but people were only talking about clock cycles and Moore's Law and processing yeah. power, you know, not thinking about cloud computing, were we, <laughs> back then? <laughs> It uh, it definitely it definitely was a big deal in 1999 when I started. Uh, people in storage realized that they were on the cusp of what they can do in terms of aerial density, and there there have been a number of challenges overcome in magnetic spinning these devices to reach the density where we are today. And in 2003, we realized flash becomes another challenge. And uh, and uh, actually, my first uh, in my first uh, Ten years in the job, I was still mostly in the in the physics world, focused on variety of the of the physics and mechanics problem in the HDD. And it's with the emergence of the flash 
and uh, and especially phase change memory that, that I started sort of uh, uh, converging more towards uh, electronics and hardware design. So I but, work you know, in digital. If it goes in experimental physics, you know, you, you get so much training in, in how to build your custom measurement uh, tools, how to design a software stack and how to build things from the scratch. That, that, that departure is relatively natural for people in experimental physics. And, and, and my college training was in, 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 in School of Electrical Engineering. So, so I was reasonably familiar. I used to be a teaching assistant in, in analog electronics, actually, about it. So. Oh, wow. So see, I, I was just going to say, I've been doing digital for so long that actually sometimes I forget how much physics is actually involved in, in under the hood that we don't actually see day to day. And now that you brought this up about the limits of physics, um, you know, for, for storage and whether or not you go magnetic or not, I mean, this makes me think how much of it is still happening without us, because we've become so specialized in what we do. You know, I, I'm actually not even thinking about analog 90% of the time. Uh, it's just fascinating because when you're building these disks. So I just want to ask you a quick question related to hard drives. So, you know, we've had hard drives for a long uh, amount of time, right? For many, many years. When did the, years. Hmm? Since how much? Since when? I think 60 years at least. 60 years. I think, I think the first Raymac was shipped in mid-50s. So, and so it's about 65 years, yeah. So I'm going to come to to some of the other questions, but just want to um, ask you this on the back of what you're talking. Since when did processors become important for storage? And what is the actual need for having better, faster processors for storage devices? Ah, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, uh, processors are essential technology for storage. And, uh, and uh, in, in, my, in my current company that absorbed all these other storage companies, Western Digital, this, this has been recognized a long time ago. Western Digital used to have their own processor design, which they use for a variety of storage controllers that they were shipping. And they even at one point built a, uh, built a computer uh, uh, around their processor, processor design. All right. So, so, so as, as, um, as uh, storage industry was evolving, uh, originally the the controller was a separate component from the from the actual storage element. Okay. The spinning disk was really really just a bare bone servo mechanical system with electrical connectors. The storage controller was typically a standalone device or part of the host, and this is how these things were organized. I think in IBM originally. And Western Digital and several other companies started engaging in the storage controller business, which was fairly lucrative. And at one point, they had this great idea of integrating storage controller and mechanics together into a compact, compact device that would expose a block interface to the host, which really started simplifying software stack. Because I don't know if you, how much you remember early computers. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> There were, you know, very often disk problems and you had to do all sorts of uh, host scanning and remapping of blocks, etc. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. this, this caused quite a revolution and, and, and the local processor, uh, if you look at different tasks that it does today, it's, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Just, um, I think, uh, I think um, 
the power of the processor complex on a modern enterprise hard disk drive or, or, or solid state disk drive uh, uh, actually eclipses the performance laptops from 10 years ago. Meaning you have a very serious processing complex, you often have a very large memory, a surprisingly large amount of memory, uh, like I've, I forgot exact details, but uh, uh, and um, about gigabytes of DRAM. Yes, 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 that's right, that's right. And, uh, and uh, powerful processor complex in terms of total, uh, total uh, uh, of TOPS. You obviously you run it at a lower frequency because you want to control the power, but uh, so, so, and operating system, very serious uh, real-time operating system, you know, custom, custom OS uh, and uh, employing uh, multiple threads, etc. So actually, when you started your career from physics and you're talking about this um, physics dominated and, you know, aspect and analog, now what you're saying is today's hard disks are much more dominated by digital, right? If you were to give a split of how much analog and digital and physics yeah. is, is uh, being played out, what do you hard reckon? Di hard disk drives are amazing technology that way. You, you, I don't think that you can... I mean, it encompasses uh, a fundamental, fundamental solid-state physics and condensed matter physics of magnetism of nanoscale magnetism because bits today are only like uh, like maybe ten nanometers in in diameter. Mm -hmm. It encompasses uh, incredible nanoscale hydrodynamics because the slider actually flies at uh, at the few nanometer fly height. At the phenomenal speed, at a speed that's basically thirty meters per second, and with uh, servo mechanics that keeps that head with three sigma of like seven nanometers or eight nanometers, you know, staying on the track, and um, with chemistry for the lubricant that keeps that interface lubricated, and with um, make sure it doesn't get hot. <laughs> yeah, with a pretty pretty incredible analog channel. Right, that operates at multi gigahertz frequencies and uh, and does the signal conditioning and uh, and then error you know uh, error correction on that channel mm -hmm. and then obviously the digital processor complex that puts all of this stuff together and abstracts it in a nice way to a user who just sees the LBAs <laughs> and oh, never really has to worry just to use the right driver and, and thank you so oh, much oh. for explaining this. So tell me, why are you working with the Chips Alliance? What is Chips Alliance, anyways? Ah, great, great question. So, so um, Chips Alliance is a uh, open source hardware effort that has naturally grown out of a group of uh, open source hardware enthusiasts uh, that originally met around RISC V. We we did not want to only have the open source. Uh, open source instruction set architecture, but we got excited about the idea that uh, microarchitectural implementation sitting behind uh, this interface could be standardized in some interesting use cases. Mm -hmm. And we were thinking that uh, basically there are several classes of embedded processors that everybody needs and that the planet would uh, definitely be excited to have a powerful out-of-order processing core. And that, um, and that it would make sense to unite the efforts around the CPU in a similar way how 
software community got uh, unified around the idea of uh, standardized Linux operating system. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so we basically wanted to make a, you know, if you want to make an analogy, we wanted to make this, if, if uh, RISC-V-ISA was a mirror, mm -hmm. we wanted to make a mirror image of, of uh, Linux kernel on the other side of the metal. And uh, that, that, was, that was basically our original, original idea. So we, we formed the organization and uh, as we basically got created, um, we quickly started discovering all the important uh, bits and pieces that are missing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we had some great IP originally donated by Western Digital for his file course, but it was developed using uh, proprietary tools. Correct. And proprietary tools kind of made it difficult to disseminate and share uh, the design files and especially verification test benches because they, they were they were done with uh, proprietary tools. And this has led to effort to sort of figure out, uh, okay, so what are the tools that we need to sort of start working on all this IP together? And, uh, and the software and EDA component of the Chips Alliance just took off like crazy. And, and this is what happens with open, you know, Chips Alliance is an open organization. Any company or individual can basically come in and if they have a meaningful proposal, it can become a part of, you know, the part of organization. So software and EDA component really started growing quite a lot. And interface architecture started growing quite a lot. Uh, because that's a, that's the second thing that's kind of fairly important. You mean hardware interface? Or you mean how to, yeah, how to build a common bridge. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Uh, so, so now, uh, two years after inception, we have a... Um, several significant uh, software projects uh, in development of, uh, of uh, design tools and simulation tools. Uh, we have uh, several exciting uh, interface uh, projects uh, like a chiplet, uh, chiplet interface and, and, and OmniExtend interface. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, and uh, we also have a uh, original RISC-V IP donated by Western Digital and right. donated by UC Berkeley and from Rocket SOC. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, the, the list is long. Uh, you, you can find a couple of my presentations online. Sure. So basically, you've created um, an ecosystem of open source software, um, EDA-based and hardware interfaces that can now be used on top of the original... Uh, processor that Western Digital donated, but going forwards, what else would you be? It's not. By, by the way, it's really not limited. You can you can you bring can, in any example, other. Use, yeah, you can use the chisel. Such so chisel um, programming language and compiler are part of the Chips Alliance. Right, right, and, right. And uh, and you can use uh, chisel examples that came from Berkeley and Sci-Fi to design RISC-V processors. Okay, but nothing prevents you from using chisel to design. Any other uh, any other architecture, right? If you have a license for mm -hmm. ARM or, or, or Open Power, you can design that, or, see. or 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 you can come up with your own, or maybe you are just designing a DSP, and there, there's you know, so so there, there there's no limits. I think every component is uh, uh, based on Apache V2 license and, and basically can be used uh, as is in any context. So are are you guys planning to then design more? Uh, commercial grade processors with the intention of just open sourcing the actual design and the entire 
um, infrastructure of hardware around it? Is that the intent that you would continue to make more and more processors? And would it be just available for free for anyone to use it? Is that the plan or? No, I, I, I don't think that, that necessarily all the processors designed by Western Digital would be would be open source. No, but for the Chips Alliance uh, effort. We, we have, um, in Chips Alliance, all the IP is is uh, is uh, open source. Uh, open source, obviously. right, right, right. Yeah, and 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 uh, and uh, yes, it's it's entirely possible that there will be new processing cores uh, developed uh, uh, from from the ground up in Chips Alliance, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and we are in a, in our core work group. We are sort of discussing discussing those ideas as well. Sure. Nice. So basically, what you're doing is you're you're killing the proprietary market of EDA effectively. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think that it's being killed. It's it's really just uh, it's it's probably going to um, create influences in the EDA market as well. Yeah. Basically, if 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 we look at, uh, at our most successful tool in Chips Alliance. Uh, we have a project where we are we are expanding very later uh, a, a compiler, uh, and we are implementing system Verilog uh, parser library together together uh, with Verilator in order to enable Verilator usage uh, in uh, universal verification methodology flows. And, and this is really are, what people want. Yeah. And interestingly, people want this because they want to have a UVM environment where all test benches and IP can be easily exchanged between partner companies. Without so being I, dependent uh, on yes. any particular tool yeah. from any vendor. Yeah. So. And, and, and I expect that this will influence the industry and that it will basically, you know, change how things are factored out so that people can do this. But also, if I look at the Verilator as, as a software package, uh, all the companies that are using this code enjoyed the fact that it's open source so they can understand it and maybe they can modify it, but they actually pay other companies for customer support. Mm. So nothing is really free. Uh, this is this is a this is genuinely thing that we, we see with Verilator and with RISC-5IP from Western Digital. Uh, in case of RISC-5IP, Codexit has developed a business model where they basically uh, maintain and improve uh, open source cores in the chips alliance, but offer customer technical support and verification services around it. Right. Uh, and this is basically the best working model. And similar is case with a couple of um, companies that are offering support and services in our very late. So, so I think I think that's that's uh, that's really where the open source. Movement. Hardware and open yeah. source EDA tools are going. Yeah. I don't think that, that you know, same, same as you know, Linux did not kill Windows, right? That's right. It's 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 uh, it's simply you know, and it, and it's not that uh, it's not that you can just download Linux source code and sell it to somebody. That's just not not going to work out. You actually have to yeah. develop expertise, and and you have to uh, offer a support and services, and then you can make a lot of money on Linux, as as Red Hat has proven. Yes, indeed. Indeed. No, thank you. Thank you for clarifying it. So it looks like going forwards, other than enabling better support for EDA, you'll also be introducing potentially new RISC-V IP that may be open sourced and also the only extend architecture um, and obviously improvements and enhancements to that as well, right? So that would be 
that would be my guess about the roadmap. Yes. That yes, the the, the Omni Extend is something very exciting. Omni Extend is a standard uh, for for uh, putting cache coherence messages uh, from the processing cores on the level two frames of Ethernet. Right. And that allows you building a uh, compute clusters that utilize uh, Ethernet IPs for the SOCs, Ethernet cables for the you know connectors, and, and Ethernet off-the-shelf Ethernet switches for the cache coherent switch. So you can sort of build large coherent uh, CCNUMA-like configurations by really, really repurposing very ubiquitous hardware. It's re- very reasonably priced too. So I remember, and, uh, um, I remember seeing a demo that was in 2019 with Five Summit. Um, can't quite remember who was showing this um, uh-huh, about yeah, chip that, to chip. That was a demo with uh, between Sci- it was a Sci Five uh, who who created the FPGA boards that supported tiling. Uh, yes. Packeting uh, over Ethernet, which yes. is current version of Omni Extend. Right, right, right. It was uh, Intel with uh, Barefoot Networks. Uh, That's right, Tofino. Programmable switch. Yeah, o- yeah. Although the architecture doesn't require, you don't need to have a programmable switch for this, but it's just exciting to, to do it as well, especially if you understand your cache coherence messages. And and uh, uh, we had a, I think we demonstrated uh, in 2019, we had uh, two nodes. Uh, last year, I showed the demo on one of the conferences with uh, four nodes, four cores each, and a switch. Wow, that was really exciting! It was really yeah, that's exciting. Something, that's something exciting, and, and, and you know, RIS, RIS five uh, is a new architecture. Uh, obviously, some people may want to build cache coherence in some proprietary way to get the best performance for their specific use case. Right. I'm kind of hopeful that for many companies who just want to sort of support support this as an idea and especially enable interoperability, uh, this can become exciting. So one thing that's exciting is I can build a processor and you can build a processor, and uh, and uh, we actually have a chance to share the memory in a coherent way. This and, is so, and sounding that's, that's, so exciting, but I'm just wondering what about verification? <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are ways and means of overcoming those challenges. Of but uh, I, 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 say, I say verification verification of uh, cache coherence on its own is, 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 a, is, is, a, is a art and, and, a, and a very special technology. Yeah. How on earth would that actually even happen? But... I don't want to go too much in the verification side today. Um, so I want to wrap up today with a quick question to you. Can you give us some tips, uh, for especially for newbies? What should they be doing to carve out a successful career in engineering, whether it's electronics or software, if there is any such partition anymore? <laughs> you know, What would be your uh, insight? What would be you say? Five things that everybody should do to become successful. Well, you know, it's it's difficult to create a it's difficult to create a prescription for success because in my experience, uh, especially as a manager and as a recruiter of of, of uh, new fresh engineering um, uh, uh, blood for Western digital research and, and development, 
it really comes from your passion. So it's 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 people who are very passionate uh, about their work that uh, they end up being very successful. And uh, and that passion actually is um, is is something that also enables them to cross the boundaries. So people people who are very successful are usually not limited to one one specific field, but also demonstrate that that they are able to learn new subjects, new fields, and and apply apply their their, their skills in in a new area. So I, I would say that the that the most important general prescriptions for success are actually having some passion for <laughs> for making new stuff. And then having this understanding that uh, that uh, engineering career assumes continuous learning, meaning that you can't stop, you know, learning new things. You kind of have to have to learn new things. And um, and as I have discovered for myself, you also often have to open old notebooks and <laughs> and redo redo subjects you may have successfully passed twenty years ago. But, absolutely, you know, absolutely. You, know, absolutely. you may want to do it again. Just say very much same fundamental thing. Yeah. So what you're saying is something quite um, nice and, and precise. You're saying if you're passionate about learning lots of new things and you're also passionate about making new things. And so long as you're able to learn continuously um, and keep going back to the things that you may have learned and forgotten. And that's basically a whole closed loop control system, right? <laughs> so, so basically that's the recipe for success. And that's quite true, actually. Going to fundamentals is very important. I think algorithms beat programming languages and yeah, and, 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 Python. <laughs> and you know, in my time when I was at the university, um, you know, we didn't have so much of internet education available, cool videos, opportunities to learn from experts. And I think these days um, we have that. And I think students should, you know, exploit that to its fullest. You know, not everything is in a book. And even even if it is in a book, having someone like you teaching them how a hard disk works uh, from all angles in, in, you know, two and a half, three minutes of pitch could be a life-changing moment because, you know, reading a book, you know, where, where will you find a book that teaches you how hard drives work? You know, <laughs> That's, this is the problem with, you know, education. There is a book, actually. Is it? Okay, that would be good to know. You know, when, when IBM... When IBM Mohammed and Research invited me for a job interview in in in, in 1999, uh, I was kind of, you know, first I was dis- disappointed because I thought, hard this chat, it's like like it's like a gramophone. Why would I be just like that? Because Caltech, we were already working on, you know, I was working on gallium nitride high power devices, but my colleagues were working on memory, you know, on, on uh, silicon-resistant tunneling diodes for memory errors. And so we were already thinking solid-state memories. But then I read this book, you know, before the interview, I, was, I spent like five days and crammed up and, and finished the book on hard disk drive. Uh, so there is a book? There, there is a few books. Oh, I see. So the book is called uh, Magnetic Disk Drive Technology, Heads, Media, Channel, Interfaces and Integration. Wow, quite a long title. And what is it? First edition and the author is Kanuji Usher. Awesome. So let me wrap it for today. And thank you very much for coming in with me today. My listeners, I hope you liked today's podcast. And if you do, uh, please let us know what you liked. If you want to hear more about 
anything particular, let me know. We'll be back next week. <laughs>